0: Welcome to the Intuitively Aligned Podcast, a place for changemakers to cultivate their intuition and foster greater impact in their everyday lives. I am your guide, Sydney Bloom. Hi, friends. Today's episode, we have a very special guest, Surabi Jain. She is a leader in the social impact sector with nearly 20 years of experience designing, implementing, and managing programs specifically for racialized and equity seeking populations in the US and Canada. Surabi is the executive director of Toronto's Workforce Funder Collaborative. And she is also the founder of Power and Privilege and co-founder of the Women in Power Women's Allyship Leadership Program. Her lived experiences have afforded her a unique perspective on transformative systems change, and that is precisely what she does. Surabi brings experiences from the workplace, from her travels, and from her childhood that have shaped her understanding of community, leadership, and human development. I am so excited to have you on the Intuitively Aligned podcast. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Sydney. I'm so excited to be here as well and talk about intuition. I think probably my favorite word.
0: Yay! (laughs) To start off, i like to ask our guests if they can share a little bit about who their people are and where they
1: come from. Yeah, this is a good question. So I grew up in India. I lived the first 19 years in in India. I grew up in in a little uh, suburb near New Delhi. And at the age of 19, I moved to the US to study. And I was there for the next 19 years. That's where I did my bachelor's and my master's and then worked for 15 years. And then literally to the date, 19 years later, I moved to Toronto and have been in Toronto the last three and a half years. Ish years. So when you ask that question, I feel like it's a loaded question for me. My people, and I'm from India, um, mm-hmm. where do I feel affinity? It's hard to say because it's been so long since I've not lived in India. I've lived more of my life outside of India than in India. Um, so this is the longest answer to a very short question.
0: I love to ask that question because I think we sometimes in our human doing, And going about our days, we forget to really invite each other to share the parts of ourselves that define us through our relationships and through places. So I appreciate hearing about it. When we connected, you had mentioned your grandfather. It's really a privilege when we have knowledge of our parents or our grandparents' generations and how they came to shape us.
1: I have so many stories from all my grandparents. Mm. But my paternal grandfather... Really loved his granddaughter. Growing up in India, where there's such a preference for a male child, I think I was privileged to grow up in a household where my parents really wanted a girl child first. I only have a younger brother. There are only two of us in terms of my siblings. And on my dad's side, amongst my cousins, there are five girls and three boys. My grandfather He loved his granddaughters. And they always, both my grandfathers on my mom's side and my dad's side, they had only one thing to say to us, which is we want you to study. We want you to study as much as we want. Marriage is not something that should be on your mind. It should always be studying. Mm -hmm. And I think I told you this, that amongst all my cousins, all the girls on both sides of the family, have at least a master's degree, if not two masters. And all the boys only have a bachelor. (laughs) Which is so interesting only because when you grow up in a country like India, where girls are not considered, and things have changed, I should say that. But for many families still, girls are not considered good luck, good omen. for my family to always be like, you're a blessing. We're so excited right now. I think I'm privileged and I'm lucky. For sure.
0: Mm, your people are progressive people.
1: For sure. For sure.
0: I mean, it feels like an intention for you and for the girls in your family. How did that impact you growing up?
1: So I think there was there was certainly intentionality in terms of the decisions my parents took. And I've lived with that mindset. is What is the intention in terms of what you're doing? Why you're doing? How you're doing? Even my move to the U.S., was mm-hmm. very intentional very planned my brother was um, moving to the u.s he's younger than me for his uh, bachelor's in engineering and my parents gave me the opportunity to move to the u.s and offer to pay for my education because they never wanted me to feel like my brother got the opportunity and i didn't
0: right
1: so i think intentionality is existed all my life i don't quite know how i Can live without it.
0: I mean, that resonates for me. Intentionality to me is the foundation of having awareness and presence as we're going through our experiences to shape them in the ways that would serve us or have a positive impact or whatever it is that that intention is. So I think it's for sure, it's a beautiful and powerful thing to understand what the roots of your experience of intentionality are and to know that they come from parents that saw that for you and who you are and how you operate. For sure. Would you share a little bit about the way that you bring intentionality to how you move in the world and what it is that you're doing in terms of the impact that you're
1: creating? Yeah, for sure. Intentionality plays a big role In my work, in my career, in my personal life, in things that I would consider professional but outside of work, I think two big things. I truly believe we can leave a better world than we got. All of us can. Mm -hmm. But that requires intention. And a better world doesn't necessarily mean from an environment perspective. I really think about it in terms of how we behave, how we operate how we treat other people. We may have been given a world where indigenous communities and other people are not being treated right. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean we have to continue that. We have the power to change that in our generation and show the next generation what that looks like. And I think that work starts with intention. That work starts with the intention that I have to be better. I think that's where I start right, is mm-hmm. I have to do better every day, has to be better than the day before. The second is, I think, for me, equity is really important and how that shows up in my work and in my life. It's obviously been a journey. I, I wasn't born knowing what equity means. I didn't even know how to operationalize it five years ago. I knew what it is, but operationalizing it is that hard step. That required intention and intention to keep going, even when you make a mistake, and intention Mm -hmm. to keep going, even when it's hard work, and intention to keep going because you want to leave a better world. So I think for me, it plays a big role. I also decided about three years ago, after I moved to Canada, was that I'd been so fortunate to be able to move to a country to live in two different places, to be able to bring with me my culture to wherever I went, that I wanted to give back. And I started doing that by offering mentorship to women of color to help Mm -hmm. them get in positions of leadership and power. And it was very intentional because I wanted to see more women of color in positions of power. So if I could do something which was either send them a job description if they were looking for a job or put a word for them, you know, reference, do it, just a reference whether they asked for it or not. Help them with their resume, help them practice interviewing, make connections for them. I think it's all about how do you achieve what you want to see in the world? How do you move forward? In my career, in in especially at the Funder Collaborative, I've been very intentional in terms of how we're giving money, away, who we're giving money to. What do organizations have to fill out to get that money? Um, as you know, with philanthropic organizations, there's a long list of things we need to do to get that money. And I have worked really hard to shorten that as much as possible. And again, there's intentionality behind it is I want them to have the money. From an equity perspective, do we really need to jump through hoops and loops to get it? What sort of information do we need that's going to help us make the decision? What is it inconsequential information? So let's not ask it. So I think it's just front and center in how I operate.
0: So you're talking about removing unnecessary barriers to a process of applying for resources to organizations so that then those who really would benefit from it, use those resources well, where they've shown a need, are able to then apply and get it without having an excessive burden?
1: That's right. Yeah. So it is reducing the administrative burden. It is really getting to the heart of the matter of what are you trying to do? Why -hmm. are you trying to do it? What do you need from us to be able to do it successfully? It's really just getting to the heart of that matter.
0: I really appreciate that you're talking about this. I feel like, especially in the last five years that I was in a community services organization, our team tried to bring a deeper level of attention to the way that we went about processes. I know it's a different context, but this reminds me of designing a youth program and saying, well, we're going to create this program for young people, and we want young people to have a voice in how it's designed, But then having to actually work to not just tokenistically involve youth so that you can tick the box and say, oh, yeah, we had youth in it. Which I'm not saying that this is done maliciously, but I do think a lot of organizations are in the habit of ticking all the boxes without really thinking about power. The initiative was a housing first initiative for young people transitioning out of child welfare system. Mm -hmm. And there was a group of young people who were advisors, who were formally playing a role in the project. And I remember working with HR to say, we're actually going to have manager candidates for the program submit something that the young people will review, and the young right. people will decide who moves forward. And it took, it took time. It took time with the organization yeah. to help them understand. I remember being asked, could you do this way? Could you do that way? And we just kept saying no, because that wasn't the point. The point was that the young people who are advising truly yeah. would pick who is going to go forward as the manager and the candidates would have to submit. A vi- it was actually a video to yeah. the youth advisors. But anyway, it just reminded me that it re- there really is a, a love and a labor that goes into making processes that are more meaningful, that are more accessible Sometimes it's more work for you, but for it sure. actually creates less work for the, whether it's the service recipient or the funding recipient down the line.
1: For sure. You bring up two important things in that example. One is, this is hard work. And because it's hard work, you want to move away from it. You don't want to do it because it requires you to change your processes. It requires you to give more time to things that requires you to think more deeply, reflect more deeply, be, again, more intentional about what you're doing Mm -hmm. and how you're doing. And the second is an example that comes to my mind. Again, similar to youth work you did a few years ago when I was in the U S we were running a program for formerly incarcerated young adults Mm -hmm. coming out of the prisons and providing them with education and training and then stabilized housing so they could be reintegrated into the society. Mm -hmm. The goal of the program was to reduce recidivism, which is basically making sure these kids that came out of the prisons were not going back into the system. So how do we keep them out of the system? So we had an organization in San Jose that was doing this work. And their problem was they couldn't get these kids to come into the program. These young adults knew about the program, they just couldn't get them to come and they couldn't quite figure out what was the challenge then what you know one of the things we recommended to them was well why don't we host a meeting with these young adults who are already in the program try and figure out what attracted them to the program and amplify that strategy right Mm -hmm. if we were downplaying whatever that one thing that attracted them let's do more of that because that's what's going to ring true for others. Yes. So we got information, you know, there were different things that attracted them. And what we did after that was we said, okay, why don't, you know, take a look at this flyer because this flyer is what is being posted everywhere. Yes, we didn't do flyers even seven years ago, even though now <laughs> it seems like everything is social media. And they realized that the flyer was not appealing. The reason mm. most of them came into the program was because they either knew of the organization or their parent was involved in the organization mm-hmm. and recommended that they go to this organization for further support. Mm-hmm. Or they had a friend who had done something else in the past. So that is what connected them to come into this program. And the flyer was not attracted to So we had them work together to create a new flyer. And we put out the new flyer mm-hmm. and lo and behold, we had kids walking through the door every day, nonstop. Wow. And in that moment, we were engaging these young adults in a meaningful way. But mm-hmm. they could create a flyer that reflected who they were is what made all the difference. Because word of mouth could only go so far. But the flyer, because it felt like their own to other young adults. Yes. They came in. Brilliant.
0: I think what I'm noticing, and I'm curious to know what you think of this, it really feels to me like organizations, like the entity of an organization itself does not possess that will or intention or creative desire. It really is up to individuals to say, like you, to say, okay, well, let's really get to the bottom of this, let's talk to the young people, let's look at all of the success factors that got the people through the doors that are here, to then design something that'll be more effective. I think it's easy for people to be complacent and think that organizations will just know to do these things better, when really it's a continuous remembering. And I, I talk about the idea of remembering a lot, but it's not just this sort of personal development or spiritual idea of remembering. It's, no, we actually have to hold that intention that you're talking about and come in every day and remember, why are we doing this? How can we do it better? How do we keep everybody engaged?
1: For sure. And I think it's not just how do we keep everybody engaged and how do we be more intentional, but from many times, I would say, nonprofits do start that right? We want to help everybody. We want to be intentional. We want to be supportive. We want to be inclusive. But they also have bureaucracy and administration Mm -hmm. uh, that they need to take care of. So these things fall off the plate because I'm still running an organization, right? And they're so deep in the work that they're doing that they forget to apply intention. Then they forget to be equity focused. Then they forget to be inclusive. And they forget what's gonna work. And they go back to things that haven't worked. And you're trying to, you know, you're on this hamster wheel continuously mm-hmm. trying to meet outcomes and outputs and outcomes and outputs and outcomes and outputs. You don't have time for creativity. And it does require a third person to come in and be like, well, why don't we take a pause and see how we can do things. Better? And I think that is what I like to do with my friends. If we're not just giving you money, Mm-hmm. We're giving you money, all right, but we're also, most importantly, giving you the luxury of time to think through how you're doing, what you're doing, when you're doing. Because most funders don't give you that luxury of time.
0: That's true. That's definitely true. And then, what does that look like in terms of how the pause gets applied? Are you talking about organizations that are changing their strategic plans or the way that they, like, and I mean, I know that what's written on paper isn't necessarily what gets played out. But I'm curious to know where the the experience of having that third party support and pause, how that then translates into more longevity in terms of change and equity.
1: Yeah, for sure. So we we like to do this is uh, organizations will submit a proposal to him. We have an external review committee of 15 people. Uh, each, each, each application is reviewed by four different individuals scored. We discuss it and then organizations get a yay or nay. So the ones that get a yay, and I should also say, we turn around application decisions within 30 days of the application date. So if you apply That's by great. February 15th, by March 15th, you will know whether you've received the funding or not, or if there are any additional questions or next steps. So you're not just waiting for months on end whether I got that $30,000, $40,000, $50,000.
0: That makes a very big difference to people yes. who are actually operating on the front exactly. line. Exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we start there. Uh, if we do have questions and if we do uh, need to do a follow up, we you know, make sure that it's within the time that makes more sense and it's not forever. Once organizations get a grant, they're required to fill out a work plan. Whether it's one that we give them, whether it's one that they create, it doesn't matter. But they fill out a work plan template that maps out the work they're going to be doing every quarter for the next one year or at least six months, or two quarters worth. And the goal there is not to say, Got you because it doesn't map out what you had written in your proposal. But the goal there is to say, okay, you submitted a proposal. Between the time you submit a work plan to us and you submit the proposal, it's usually been two months. Mm -hmm. And we know a lot of things can change in two months. Many times they don't, a lot of times they do. So what we like to do in those two months is go back to the drawing board. Does it still make sense for you to do what you proposed to us that you wanted to do? If it does, great. Fill out your work plan. If it doesn't, no problem. Fill out the work plan based on what makes sense now. So we're intentionally giving them that space and mm-hmm. the luxury of time to think through what needs to be done so they don't have to rush into time. Once we have the work plan, we meet with our 20 organizations on a monthly basis to just see the progress, just to ask what is working, what is not. Two big reasons. Again, it's not a gotcha. The first reason is we want to be able to support you when you need it. If you decide something is not working, we want to be there to give you confidence to say you can pivot. You can switch to the next thing that works. I don't want you to waste another three months, four months, trying to do the same thing that hasn't worked because you're now going to lose Critical time to be able to do mm-hmm. something else, test up another strategy. So we don't hold you accountable to what you wrote in your grant application, in your proposal, even in your work plan. Now I'm a big fan of fail quick, fail fast, fail forward. So you can move to the next person.
0: And this is really, really significant. I know for some listeners who are outside of the nonprofit sector, you may say, Well, of course, that makes sense. That's a very common mindset in the corporate world right but in the nonprofit world people would be shocked to realize how rigid funders are around holding grantees to the exact letter of what they proposed even on multi I've run multi-year projects where we've had to go back to to funders And depending on who the funder is, and I feel privileged that I've worked with funders who share the mindset that you're describing of being responsive, really wanting the impact to be there for the community and therefore having flexibility. But some of them don't. And they're just, you know, just ticking off boxes, want to make sure you did what you said you would do. And they're not even thinking about the impact. So this is, I'm saying it because for anyone listening who's scratching their head, you would be shocked to realize that what Surabi is describing is truly a rare gem of a practice, even if it is the practice that I think we need to see the whole sector move toward. Uh,
1: And the second reason we like to meet with them is to document how long something is taking. Mm -hmm. I've had organizations say, oh, I'm going to be able to meet with this partner in two weeks. We're going to be able to sign an MOU in three weeks from there. So the next quarter, we're going to be partnering together to deliver services. And you and I both know that doesn't happen. You might be meeting somebody next week. But trust me, three weeks from tomorrow or next week, you're not going to be signing an MOU. It's probably three months from next month. Right? Not even next week. Because between next week and the next month, you're probably going to have four more meetings. Mm -hmm. And you need multiple levels of approval. So when we meet with them, we can work with the organizations to say, okay, well, great. We see you haven't made progress on this issue or you've made a lot of progress on this. So when we do this for the next quarter, the work plan, let's make sure we realize that this is going to take longer. So you build that time accordingly. And once you build that time, then you know everything else that's a contingency on that. So
0: that's Mm -hmm. how long
1: it's going to take. So let's just have more realistic work plans versus yeah. having work lines that is gonna make a funder happy. We're not interested in being happy. We're interested in being realistic. And being realistic does not always come with happiness. It comes with its own fair share of pain and growth and learnings and changes and failures and successes. And that's what we're interested in. If all we wanted was to be happy and for you as a grantee organization to make up stories that made us happy we would not learn a single thing that's right we'd just still be living in our own foolish paradise and hoping and thinking quite honestly that the world is a better place because of us but we know that's not how systems change we know mm-hmm. the world is not a better place because if it was we would have done ourselves out of this. and i don't see that happening anytime in my lifetime okay? So all we can do is just be better funders, just be more humane, just be more realistic and support the organizations where they need the support. And for me, oftentimes I end up spending more money. Obviously mm-hmm. the organizations don't know the value of it in capacity building in these one-on-one meetings than I yeah. do in the funding I give them.
0: Which is wild, but it's also, I mean the fact that you recognize where the capacity needs are and can then offer resources to support that and to help organizations get there, I think is really remarkable. So I have a question for you, because what you're describing, it feels, well, what you're describing sounds very logical, even though this is a very transformed way of operating as a funder. Can you talk a little bit about what it means to use your intuition as someone who is leading systems change work?
1: Oh, God, I think this is like a million dollar question that I could maybe write a book on or actually be speechless. (laughs) So let's see where we're going to go. I think intuition for me goes with intention. So if I can be intentional about the work I'm doing, I can be very intuitive in what is going to work and what is not going to work. I generally, before leaning in on a program design or funding an organization, I can just tell if we're gonna jive or we are not. And I am no longer interested in funding organizations where I cannot have a respectful relationship both ways. It's not just me respecting them, it's them respecting me and my process And I think that's where my intuitive side kicks in. I am very, very intuitive in terms of relationships and partnerships and what is going to work and what is not going to work and what my process should be and how this is going to help organizations or not. So the more I lean into it, the better I get. I have been intuitive, I was a child. I have just known what is going to work, what is not going to work. I remember going to school in India. You know, I, I finished my high school in London. And in India, we have at least a school I went to. We would have Monday tests. So basically every Monday morning, you went to school, you had a school assembly or whatever, And then at 9 o'clock, the entire school was writing an hour-long test. And different subject and different topics and different whatever content. Every Monday, we had a test. And I would know at 10 5 exactly how much I was going to score on that test. It was not a point more, not a point Mm less. I knew exactly how I had answered, whether I did well, whether I bombed it, whether I did mediocre. And my parents would all always you know I would go home and be like this is how much I'm going to get on my mother's test and my mom would be like okay whatever. Well. and that's how much I would get and I remember when so this is cool but in 10th and 12th grade we would have to write our national exams that's just how things are in India. Mm-hmm. and you don't know who's setting these questions because you have to go to a different school to take the test the entire country that's taking the test will get the same question, okay? So just imagine millions of people are writing, millions of kids are writing these tests. Everybody's getting the same question. You have no idea who's going to score them. I would come home and tell my parents, this is how I did on this test. This is how much I'm going to score on this test or the exam. And I would then say, overall, this is what my percentage is going to be. We would have a percentage out of hundreds and know, I would come home and say, well, I think I'm going to score 89.95. Wow! I would say it's going to be, you know, 92.34 or whatever. And my mom would be like, okay, how do you know? I was like, I know exactly how I answered. I know exactly how much scores they're going to give me for this question and this question. And she would say, this is not your regular teacher. It's somebody else. And I was like, no, no, no. I know how to. I'm not kidding you, Sydney. It has been exactly that number. Every single time. Wow. So, I think intuition plays a very big role in my life. I am very, very, very intuitive. It was a point that I could predict when people were pregnant before they knew And now, so I've been doing yoga for the last six months, uh, roughly five days a week, Monday through Friday. Wow. It has become scary that I know exactly what she's going to ask us to do next. And she doesn't have the same process it's not like every monday we're doing this every tuesday we're doing this every wednesday we're doing this and i also don't have the brain power to remember what we're doing every monday tuesday mm-hmm. even though i've been doing it for six months right it's different but i know exactly what the next one is going to me and i have no idea
0: so i believe that everybody has intuition that they can access and i also think that some people have it dialed way up And a lot of the work that I do with individuals is for other folks. Sometimes we need to dial it up or, you know, there have been traumatic experiences or social conditioning that forces people out of listening to their intuition. But the fact that you've always had this, not just deep knowing, but a very precise level of clarity around What you're doing around how it will be understood and assessed by others and then what will happen from there. I'm so curious to know how you see your gifts in the big picture because these stories are so much fun. Yeah, And I feel like there's such a playfulness in the intuitive practice. Like the more seriously I take it, the more playful I make it. Yeah, And it keeps
1: opening. But I would love to know, what do you do with this? What do I do with it? Not a lot. I do like to lean into my intuition before taking big decisions. Mm-hmm. Just like, what is my gut telling me? Where is this placed? Is this the direction I should move into? Should I stay away from it? Do I get closer to it? Do I stay far from it? So I certainly use it for that. I do lean into it before any big decision making. Like, I use it a lot for guiding my work in terms of how am I showing up with others? Mm. How am I gelling with others? How am I working with others? How's my relationship with others? Good, bad, ugly, ir- irrespective. It's just helpful for me to lean into it, to know what is going to come up for me in terms of feelings. And you know, their icky, yucky feelings. And, and I know, as much as I hate to say it, but just sort of be prepared, knowing what it is.
0: When you talk about the icky-yucky factor, are you talking about having a deep sense of when other people are lacking respect or awareness in their communication or are you talking about something else?
1: It's that. It's exactly that. And it's knowing that it's okay that I'm going to be uncomfortable or they're not going to be at the same page as I am or it is not going to be my in my comfort zone, like I just know that I'm gonna be part of a conversation at lunch tomorrow, for example, that I don't agree with. But it doesn't help me to go in all guns places because it also helps me figure out what battles I'm fighting and which ones I'm not. Mm-hmm. because as I've grown older, I've certainly become aware of the fact that not all battles are worth fighting. You have to conserve your energy for the ones you really care about. Right. So, is it helpful for me to go into a polarizing conversation where somebody is already on the far end in terms of how they think about an issue? Is it my job to try and get them to think differently? I don't think so. Is it my job to maintain my sanity? Absolutely. Right. So, just knowing that about myself. Mm-hmm. being attuned with what my hot buttons are and which ones I want to save other people from pressing. You know, we're all aware of what our hot buttons are, whether we like it or not. We know what this is about
0: mm-hmm. or
1: what upsets us deeply. And there are certain people that you're willing to be upset by because you have the bandwidth or the energy to argue with Or you're okay arguing with them because even... When you come out of that to the other side, you can both learn to agree to disagree, but you have engaged in a healthy discussion. But then there's some people that no matter what you tell them, it's not going to make a difference. And you're just using up all your energy. And I think being aware of who you use your energy for, Mm. what you use your energy for, when you use your energy becomes really important. Not just personally, but professionally. And I'll, you know, tie that back to our grant-making process. If I'm supposed to go and have a conversation with a grantee and ask them, why are you serving only 20 people through a $200,000 grant? It doesn't serve my purpose. Because there's no way that I can ever justify to myself that that's money well spent. Just because of the way philanthropy works and how we've been trained to think about it. Mm-hmm. But if i can go in and have a conversation about how are you changing the system how is this going to make your world more productive more effective and yes perhaps you're going to only be able to impact 20 kids or 20 adults right now but you've set in motion a process that is going to make life easier for the next hundred coming through this program and that's a very different conversation a very different mindset a very different relationship it's all about how do i reframe and who do i want to reframe for because i don't want to constantly be arguing that just doesn't serve any good.
0: well and it sounds like not only are you choosing not to go in and argue you actually are opting into a perspective where there is space to learn there's space to be surprised there's yeah for sure there's the potential for new information to be there and a certain degree of trust as well that if things are not in integrity that will also surface absolutely. absolutely but that that doesn't require you to force it and I really I respect that a lot because honestly I think that so much of an intuitive practice is really understanding and managing our own energy and And having a continuous openness to different perspectives so that we're not getting stuck in those energy drains. So that resonates really deeply for me. Okay, I have one question for you about putting your intuition into practice. Because a lot of people listen to the podcast and say like, wow, you have these amazing guests. They have deep inner knowing. They put it into action in these really transformational ways. But what are they actually practicing every day? Can you tell us something about your own personal practice? And it doesn't have to be daily per se, but just something that is a simple practice that you have or something that's been really personally impactful for you.
1: Yeah, I wish I had a very smart answer for you. I, I don't. My practice is listening to my gut. You know, they say the gut is your second brain really does control everything. I think for me it, it really is my first brain that guides my actual brain mm. like I have to listen to what is coming up good feelings, bad feelings negative feelings be careful feelings this is not going to work feeling everything. I just have to lean into what I'm hearing and that requires you to shut out the noise. To be able to listen inward. In is to shut out the outside world. So how do you do that? It's being attuned with yourself. It's knowing yourself. It's first and foremost a lot of inner work. But it's really sitting with the discomfort that you have. And knowing where it comes. It's really sitting with the messiness of it all. It's doing the hard work. I'll give you an example. So a couple of weeks ago, I put out a job description. Uh, apparently went viral on LinkedIn. Not my intention.
0: I saw it. I think that's how we connected because right. it was such
1: an epic job description. 120 people we posted. On. It had like over 75,000 views. Wow. This was posted in early October. Mm. And we're Recording this end of November, and it is still being reposted, even though I've made my own decision and hired the person. And now I have to go and comment on all those posts saying, I'm not hiding, but happy to share my process if anybody's interested. <laughs> you know? So I bring that up only because it was not an easy job description to write. After having written the job description, the harder part was following through on it. Then making sure I stay absolutely true to what was written. Making sure I follow the timelines that I had laid out. Making sure I followed all the steps I said I was going to do. And the one piece that was the scariest piece for me was I had said, I had written a section about what it is like to work with me. Where I had to be deeply honest and be critical of myself. Which none of us like to. But I did it. And then I said, I'd be happy to provide two references of people that have worked with me so you get a sense of what it is like working with me. So if you remember, we had started this conversation with like how equity is important yes. and how I return or turn back the decisions on our grant making within a month from the date they closed. Mm-hmm. Well, similarly, if I'm going to do two reference checks on you, I want you to be able to do two reference checks. So that's where it came from deeply uncomfortable for me to write them. Very hard for me to think about how I'm going to operationalize them. And extremely challenging to identify two people that I wanted to be my reference. Challenging not because I didn't know people. Challenging because I would have to go to them and tell them and ask them will you be my reference? And they could say no. And people change. And we change. And I've changed in so many years. So of course, some of these people are going to be like, well, she was never like this us. And it's fair game. I say all of this, to give you an example of that practice with mm-hmm. actually putting out in the world what made me so uncomfortable. Actually putting out in the world something that was going to force me to walk that path. Actually putting out in the world something that I had to do mm-hmm. if I wanted to come across a tentative. And I and I am. I'm not saying I wanted to come across, but I wanted to be that person. Yes. So the practice is you have to do the hard work. The practice is you have to stick with the messiness that comes with it. The practice is you're going to have muck and you're going to be dirty and you're going to hate yourself for taking the wrong steps. And it's just fighting through that. It is cutting through that rock that's in front of you. It is constantly moving forward, like it or not, but just move forward and learn, and learn from that. Of course.
0: Thank you. And I think that that's very, very honest. I guess the job description will come down, but part of me hopes that there will be an archive somewhere for <laughs> for reference and educa- education of others, or maybe it'll end up being a training that you offer one day. Speaking of which, <laughs> I know we're nearing the end of our time, but you create with intuition and with great impact in your world of work and you've also created outside of your quote-unquote job in terms of what you offer to the world and I'm wondering if you could just take a couple of minutes and talk a little bit about what you're doing in your own business as well in power times privilege and with women in power
1: I'd love that so a couple of years ago Two years ago, actually, I decided I wanted to really study the impact of power on people, processes, and philanthropy. And that really came from the fact that I'm in philanthropy. And there's such a power imbalance in philanthropy and such power dynamics that I thought I needed to study more. So I went about looking for programs that exist and nothing exists that I was happy with. And then somebody recommended, why don't you just create a fellowship for yourself? Fund it yourself, read as much as you can, take smaller courses, not a program, talk to people, pay them for their time if you want to, but just gather information. You don't have to get a formal degree. And Mm. I thought that was a brilliant suggestion. So in 2022, July, I launched my fellowship called Power X Privilege, which is Understanding the Intersection of Power and Privilege, and I firmly believe that that intersection can yield to empowerment, can yield to belonging, can lead to oneness. So I set out on trying to understand the intersection of power and privilege. At this the same year, I also launched a fellowship that brings together white and racialized women. We use storytelling as the medium for narrative change and narrative change around how race, gender, and patriarchy affects us at work all Mm. quite similarly yet differently. We just wrapped up our third cohort last week. We've had nearly 70 women go through the program. Wow. And it's been brilliant in terms of the information shared, in terms of narrative change, in terms of biases addressed. We hope to have cohorts every every spring and fall, maybe in the summer for the next foreseeable future, and continue to just bring those stories and those experiences and those narratives that just like what we did right now. Just you and I sharing our stories. So just to have more of that, except we do it over nine weeks every spring and fall. So that's what women in power.
0: Thank you for sharing. I think this work is so important. And the fact that you saw something missing in the world and created your own fellowship and created a cohort-based offering so that women of different backgrounds can come together and work towards transforming our workplaces is is so powerful. So thank you for sharing about that. And thank you for sharing so many different parts of yourself and your own story. It's really, yes. it's really a pleasure to connect with you. And I know that our audience will appreciate hearing from you as well.
1: Likewise. Yeah, it was so lovely to chat. Thank you so much for having me.